Father, we do thank you for the amazing mystery of your grace and that you would share your heaven with us and your kingdom with us and your love with us and your fellowship with your Son with us and your Spirit with us and all of your good words with us. Father, we are so grateful and amazed. God, I pray that you would help us to see by your word now more of how undeserving we are of these things so that we would love you more and be more satisfied in you and be happier and live lives that bring you glory more. God, I pray that you would work through your word in power now. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. If you'll open your Bible to Matthew 5, please. Matthew 5, last week we started this great teaching of our Lord Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. We saw that the Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom of heaven, who is in the kingdom of heaven, and what kind of righteousness characterize those who have been brought into it. We saw that the order of the Sermon on the Mount matters. The first eight verses are the necessary starting point for understanding what Jesus teaches in the rest of the sermon and for actually living out what Jesus teaches in the rest of the sermon. The first section is called the Beatitudes, eight pronouncements of blessing. These Beatitudes give us a profile of the people Jesus has saved into his kingdom and what he is making them. Notice the way the first and last Beatitudes match. Look at how the sermon begins in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now look at the last Beatitude in, in the introduction, which is verse 10. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for, same as verse 3, Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So these two matching bookends bind together all the verses in between. It teaches us all these beatitudes belong together. So this is not giving us eight different kinds of blessed people. It is showing us an eightfold or eight-sided single profile of the one and only kind of person who has been blessed with salvation in Christ and His kingdom, and is living under the enjoyment of that blessing. So, in effect, these Beatitudes show us the essential character of a Christian. The x-ray of a born-again heart, and also what the born-again should aim for, to cultivate in their heart. Uh, These Beatitudes show us the effects that the gospel will have in a person's heart when and if he puts his faith in. In it. So these are not eight steps to salvation, but eight blessed results of it. Now, to press deeper, uh, we see also that the order of the Beatitudes matters. All of these blessed qualities are, are interconnected, interrelated, but, but they are connected in a certain order, in a sequence. There's a progression to these. You can't separate the Beatitudes, but neither can you scramble them and end up with the same essential character. Each beatitude will build on the ones that have 
come before. And that means the first is first for good reason. There's no true righteousness of heart that can precede this first blessed heart disposition. And actually the nature of this first character quality requires that it comes first because it is essentially recognizing that you have no pre-existing righteousness or blessedness in and of yourself and that you can't get any by yourself or for yourself. So look at it again with me. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, there's today's first main point. The poor in spirit are blessed. This is the most foundational heart posture a person must have to receive and then to enjoy the blessings of heaven. To become what the rest of the Beatitudes describe requires this first. To do what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount commands requires this first. It all starts here. Are you poor? Now, this is not about material poverty. It it is a heartfelt recognition of spiritual poverty. It doesn't say blessed are the poor. It says blessed are the poor in spirit. And I said last week, to be poor in spirit means you you recognize you are spiritually bankrupt. You You are totally impoverished in terms of your own righteousness, or, or in terms of good deeds that you could do for God to merit His kingdom. So if you think about someone who is really and truly poor, it, it means they have great debts that they can't pay. It means they have great needs that they can't meet. It means they are dependent on others, just taking pity on them. And, and showing mercy to them to meet their needs. That's the idea with being poor in spirit. You recognize your desperate need for God to have pity on you. And so you depend utterly on Him, only on Him, to meet your needs and especially your greatest needs. Your in spirit needs. Pardon from sin, rescue from judgment, transformation into true righteousness. So the poor in spirit cast themselves at his feet and they say, God, I am at your mercy in every way and that's all that I can do. Please see me and have pity on me and show mercy to me. I need you. And there is nothing that I could give to you that you need. The poor in spirit go to God empty-handing empty-handed, they see they have nothing to contribute to him that he would need or that would lay some kind of claim on him to merit his righteousness, his kingdom, his blessing. And, and so they don't even try to approach him on those basis. The poor in spirit know that if the kingdom of heaven is going to be theirs, it must be the gift of God's grace given apart from any consideration of any work that they've done and received then through faith alone or dependence alone. Now, if you understand that, then you would understand why Martin Lloyd-Jones said, there is no more perfect statement of the doctrine of justification by faith alone than in this beatitude. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs and theirs only is the kingdom of heaven. Only those who come and say, I've got nothing. I depend on what your son has done. Period. Jesus told a parable that illustrates what it looks like to be poor in spirit in comparison to the opposite. It's found in Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Listen to this. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And so they treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, counted righteous, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's a picture of poor in spirit. So, so aware of your own sin before God and so, so appropriately humble, believing God's mercy is your single hope and, and even aware of your unworthiness to receive that mercy. He did not even feel worthy to look up at God when he asked for mercy. Blessed was that man. His was the kingdom of heaven. He went home justified. The poor in spirit are blessed in the terms of the Beatitudes of Romans. Uh, in Romans chapter 4, 6 through 8, blessed are those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Blessed is the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, the great hymns of church history uh, show that, that people who are now in heaven were poor in spirit while they were on earth because they were willing to sing things like the third verse of the hymn, Jesus, lover of my soul. I am all unrighteousness, vile and full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. Willing to sing the third verse of Man of Sorrows, what a name. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. To sing the, the hymn we just sang, I stand amazed. I'm full of wonder that you would love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. Can you join those old choirs of the redeemed and sing those things from the heart? You know, in pride, people can't. They chafe against those hymns. But you can sing under this blessing from God that makes our hearts poor in spirit, which, which is just sober-minded humility. 
This poor in spirit attitude is not asking you to believe something extra bad about yourself so it'll make you humble. It's just believe what is true about God and about us, our smallness and our sinfulness. The world does not favor this heart disposition, poor in spirit. In fact, most in the world would argue that, that this kind of self-assessment is actually bad for people. Uh, that, that being poor in spirit like this is, is the root of like, problems and dysfunction, certainly of unhappiness and, and of unrighteousness. Uh, you know, if you were a little more high in spirit about yourself, you wouldn't make these bad choices, right? Jesus taught the opposite. He preached being poor in spirit is the beginning of all blessedness. It is the first step towards true happiness and true righteousness. And I think, that, I think that's true for two basic reasons. The first I alluded to earlier, that it's just how to live in sync with reality. This is the heart disposition that corresponds to what is actually true about us. That we are spiritually bankrupt. We are utterly dependent on God. We are desperately in need for His mercy. Every reason someone might come up with for why we shouldn't be poor in spirit is a lie. It is self-deception, thinking more highly of oneself than we ought. And second, being poor in spirit leads us to God's blessing because God is wonderful. He is overflowing. He is infinite in mercy. He gives His mercy freely and lavishly and willingly and joyfully even. He gives His mercy to the needy, and He gives every kind of mercy that is needed, and He gives it to everyone who is just humble enough to receive His mercy from Him in a way that doesn't make Him a party to someone's idolatrous pride and deceit. Which is to say, He gives His mercy to the poor in spirit. And only them, because he is perfectly generous and perfectly holy. And the Psalms show us how we must maintain this heart posture, always coming to him poor in spirit and confident that he helps and delivers. These two things should go together. I am helpless, but God is my helper when I look to him as one who's poor and needy. King David said this repeatedly. King David was not a poor man, materially speaking. But he repeatedly says, I am poor in the Psalms. In Psalm 34, 6, he says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. In Psalm 40, 17, David wrote, As for me, I am poor and needy. You are my help and my deliverer. Psalm 70, verse 5, he wrote, I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, God. You are my help and my deliverer. Psalm 86, 1, he wrote, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. In Psalm 109, 21 and 22, he wrote, O God, because your steadfast love is good, deliver me, for I am poor and needy. David was a blessed man. And I know that not because he was the king of a kingdom. Lots of people have been kings of kingdoms and not lived under God's blessing. I know that because he was poor in spirit before God. And Jesus says, such as these are blessed. 
they receive the kingdom of heaven. Now to give one example on the other side, I recall what Jesus said to the church of Laodicea at the end of Revelation 3. They were the church that was lukewarm, full of spiritual apathy, indifference, cold in their affection for Christ. The root of that dangerous spiritual state, lukewarmness, and it is a dangerous spiritual state. That's the very insidious thing about lukewarmness is you, people who are lukewarm feel kind of lukewarm about it. Jesus says, this is a very serious danger when you don't see yourselves as poor and needy, that that's what lukewarmness comes from. Jesus said in Revelation 3, 17, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so you may be rich, and white garments so you may clothe yourself, and salve to anoint your eyes so you may see. Jesus is saying, be poor in spirit and come to me you will end up rich with my blessings. The King of heaven, God, He wants to dwell with the lowly of spirit. Isaiah 57, 15. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Here's what He says. I dwell in the high and holy place, heaven, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to receive, revive the spirit of the lowly. The king of heaven says, I dwell with the lowly in spirit. And so when the king of heaven came to earth, Jesus said, the poor in spirit have the kingdom of heaven. Now, how can we cultivate this sober-minded lowliness of spirit? Uh, the Pharisees, you know, just made themselves look gloomy when they fasted. Uh, Jesus condemned that. How can we cultivate not the appearance of lowliness, a pretentious humility, but a true lowliness in spirit? Well, first, watch out for those opposites of being poor in spirit. We discussed some of them like self-righteousness, self-reliance, a kind of flippant self-confidence before God. Watch out also for, for fruit that comes from not being poor in spirit. What is that? Treating others with contempt. Comparing yourself with others. Self-righteous ways. Lukewarmness in seeking God. A refusal to associate with the lowly. Living with, with a kind of entitlement mentality. Watch out also for ungodly counterfeits of being poor in spirit. I, I told you last sermon that there is a kind of counterfeit righteousness of all of these blessed qualities. Here are some of those of being poor in spirit. A kind of self-focused self-pity. 
an, an artificial and put-on modesty, a, a false humility that says, uh, I hope people notice how humble I am, or just assuming you're poor in spirit because you're poor in some material way relative to others around you. Now, the best way to guard against those things is to pursue the real thing, to, to cultivate the true poverty of spirit. And the best way to do that is, is, I mean, what it is, is humbly acknowledging that you are sinful and small before a holy and very great God. And so the way to cultivate that is to try and see how holy and great God is. See, being poor in spirit, it, this is an irony, it is a self-assessment that doesn't come from being overly focused on self. That will never lead to a godly kind of poor in spirit. It comes from being focused on God and His glory. Isaiah, he was this kind of poor in spirit. He saw the Lord exalted in His holiness on His throne, and immediately he said, Woe is me! I am lost! I am unclean! And Peter was poor in spirit when he saw the Lord's power and glory on display in a miracle on a fishing boat. And immediately Peter said, Depart from me, I am a sinful man. And Job was poor in spirit when the Lord revealed to him his majesty and his unsearchable wisdom displayed in creation. Then Job immediately said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Lord, I've uttered what I didn't understand, things that are too wonderful for me. But now my eyes see you, therefore I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. See, nothing gives you a, a clear sight of yourself more than a clear sight of God. That's when you see how poor and needy you are, is when you see who He is. Beholding the glory of God, contemplating His glory, it makes you poor in spirit. And you know what? That's especially true when you see the way that the glory of God shines in the face of Christ. When Christ lived as a man, that, that was when the character and glory of God was, was shining through human nature on display in the earth in the greatest way that, that it ever had before. And you know what the glory of God looked like when it shined through Christ? It looked like a man who was lowly in spirit. This is amazing. You look at the glory of the Lord and it makes you lowly in spirit when we see His majesty and His holiness and His wisdom. But you also behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Christ and it makes you more lowly in spirit because it's a transformation into His glory. Matthew eleven twenty nine. He said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and I am lowly in heart. No wonder Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is for lowly spirits. The king of heaven is lowly in heart. If you entrust yourself to Jesus, if you become yoked to him, you must be and you will become poor in spirit. When, when Jesus lived as a man, he, he was not poor in spirit in the sense of recognizing personal sin. He didn't have any. But he did live completely dependent on his Father in heaven. And, and he submitted himself with all humility to the will of his Father in heaven. And he did not cling to his divine rights and privileges. 
to, to avoid living like the servant and slave of all. He associated with the lowly even to the point of death. On a cross, bleeding, truly poor, pitiable, naked, in our place, bearing God's curse against our sins. See, he left the high and holy place so he, so he could forever dwell with us as one holy man, one who's holy in heart, and so we could dwell with him in, in the kingdom of heaven 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus. Though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Rich in spirit. Rich with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The very first thing Jesus wants to tell you about the blessing of the kingdom of heaven is that it is God's gift of grace to the undeserving and helpless. It can only be received as such. The first beatitude is first for good reason. So is the second. Second for good reason. Look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So this is our other main point today. Those who mourn are blessed. Now this is tied tightly to the prior. Remember the examples of the men that I talked about earlier? Isaiah, Peter, Job, David. Their, their lowliness of spirit also had this element of mournfulness about it. Isaiah said, woe is me. Job said, I, I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. What this beatitude shows us is those who are truly poor in spirit don't just think that it's true, they feel it. The poor spirit that comes with God's blessing and salvation, it comes with a broken heart. It is, it is a poverty in spirit, not just in your academic worldview, but in the depths of who you are. It's very possible, it's very common for someone to acknowledge the fact that they're sinful but it just doesn't really bother them all that much. Right? They say it with a shrug. Yeah, of course, everyone's sinful. No big deal. That's not the blessed man. That's not the heart that's acting like it possesses the kingdom of heaven or that is promised the comfort of God in this verse. Blessed are they who mourn. John Stott spoke very poignantly about this beatitude. I wanted to share it. He said, It is one thing to be spiritually poor and acknowledge it. It is another to grieve and mourn over it. Or, in more theological language, confession is one thing, contrition is another. We need then to observe that the Christian life, according to Jesus, is not all joy and laughter. Some Christians seem to imagine that, especially if they are filled with the Spirit, they must wear a perpetual grin on their face and be continuously boisterous and bubbly. How unbiblical can we become? No! The truth is that there are such things as Christian tears, and too few of us ever weep them.
The verse I read earlier from Isaiah 57 about God dwelling with the lowly in spirit, did you hear it also said that God dwells with the contrite in spirit? Contrite means you're sorrowful or, or remorseful, mourning in spirit. And actually that verse, it didn't separate these things. It said lowly spirits are the contrite spirits. Isaiah 57, 17, he said, I dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. See, that the heavenly versions of these characteristics go together. Or like we saw in Revelation 3, right? What did not being poor in spirit lead to? Lukewarmness. Well, what do you think actually being poor in spirit will lead to then? Actually caring. Even to the point of contrition. Mourning. Or, or the, the, the poor in spirit tax collector. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He wouldn't lift his eyes to heaven. What else did he do? He beat his breast. What is that? It's a sign of remorse. Sorrow. Now here's another biblical connection. Um, at the end of this parable about the tax collector, Luke, Luke 18, what, what was the truth, do you remember, that Jesus said was proved? What, what truism was proved by God blessing the poor in spirit and justifying the, the tax collector? It was that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, you know where else the Bible affirms that same truth? Right after a command for us to mourn. As James 4, 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And he said that to encourage us to do James 4, chapter 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. So, so see, being poor in spirit and mourning together, they're part of just this basic heart humility before God that sees God truly and so sees self truly, and so looks to him for grace and receives it. Now, the second beatitude, like the first, it, it does turn upside down, really, the world's values, the world's assessment about who is blessed. Uh, not all, but many in, in the world treat all sadness like it's a problem that needs to be eliminated. Through, through various means, right? Therapy or medicine or drink or drugs or, or distraction, whether through endless entertainment or just endless busyness. But, but in reality, we need to see there is, at least in this life, a holy sadness that is essential to the experience and the enjoyment of God's saving blessings. Now notice, I said, a holy sadness, when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he doesn't have in mind all kinds of mourning. Not all sadness is part of the blessing of having the kingdom of heaven. Um, for example, Jesus said, as an extreme example, but proves the point, Jesus said what many other scriptures also say, that in hell there is weeping. They are mourning, not under God's blessing. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10. I'd like you to write down that reference. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10, because it, that distinguishes explicitly between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And so it helps us to see which mourners are the blessed ones. 
And ever says, godly sorrow is the sorrow that leads to repentance and salvation without regret. It's the kind of sorrow that ends with God's comfort and joy coming in to overcome regret. Worldly sorrow, on the other hand, leads to death, unrepentance, therefore death, and therefore deeper regrets. So, okay, this blessed morning, it's the morning associated with true repentance. The command of James 4, 9, weep, mourn, lament, that, that was a call to repent. And the model prayer of repentance in the Bible, which we read earlier in the service, Psalm 51, that it climaxes with this expression of what God is looking for when His people repent. He says, a, a broken and contrite heart. A mournful, remorseful heart. Okay, understand this. Repentance is turning from sin in the heart. It's not just a change of external behaviors. It, it's a change of heart. And any, any turning from sin, sin that stems from the heart will involve some level of brokenness or contrition. Think again. Plug this into the, the bigger message of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with these Beatitudes to show us the essential characters of a, of a Christian because one main purpose of this sermon it is to, to expose what's not that, to expose fake religion, to expose hypocritical religion, to expose superficial spirituality, and, and to show us by contrast what true religion, true righteousness is in the truly saved. And these first two Beatitudes do that in a really important way. But, but okay, we're thinking especially about the second one right now. Blessed are those who mourn, who are cut to the heart about sin, first their own sin. Okay, do you see that that kind of mourning is the opposite of superficial spirituality? Holy mourning goes totally against the grain of, of hypocrisy and religious pretending and super, superficial godliness. When Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, he, he exposes those who, who have this glib and unserious and shallow view of righteousness and heart for it. Those who are, just, who are okay with just an appearance of righteousness without actually any touching their heart. Or, or those who, he'll explain later in the sermon, those who, like the scribes and the Pharisees, reduce what righteous living means to just avoiding some really grave external sins and also keeping some like, religious minutia that doesn't really matter. Instead of actually a true and radical change deep in one's heart. And so you see this, those who mourn with godly sorrow before they actually go on to do any righteous deeds at all. They already, in their mourning, have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Be because the blessed who mourn, mourn because they truly care. Not just about the appearance of righteousness, but actually about God. His kingdom, His glory, His righteousness, about His will on earth being done as it is in heaven. So they mourn over sin in their own life. They, they mourn over the sin of others too. 
They don't just feel disgust about the sin of others. They don't just feel moral outrage about the sin of others. Uh, They don't just make self-righteous comparisons with the sins of others. There's mourning. Psalm 119, 136. The blessed man says, My eyes shed streams of tears because people don't keep your law. Mourning. Also, as opposed to like uncaring toleration of the sins of others. 1 Corinthians 5, 2. Uh, the Corinthians are rebuked and told they ought to mourn over the unrepentant sinners instead of being proud over how tolerant they were of him. The ultimate blessed man, the man of mourning, the man of sorrows, Jesus, remember, he wept over Jerusalem as he considered her sin and the judgment that it was bringing her. And, 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 and this heart will be, at some level, cultivated in his followers. It can be cultivated quite a bit as it was in the Apostle Paul. Uh, He said in Romans 9, 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. But you know what? He didn't have a problem. That was the beauty of holiness. He had this great sorrow and unceasing anguish because of how his fellow Jews were rejecting Christ. And in Philippians 3.8, Paul said, I, I speak with tears about those who walk as the enemies of the cross. We also see in Scripture there is a holy mourning that, that comes from sorrow over the effects of sin in the world, like, like pain and, and death. As again, our Lord Jesus wept over the death of his friend Lazarus. Blessed, blessed Blessed are those who mourn in these ways we've discussed. Now, maybe some of you have thought this already, but there is an irony in that phrase, isn't isn't there? Blessed are those who mourn. It's almost like saying, happy are the sad. Godly mourning, it's it's what presses our hearts into the shape that can be filled with the truest joys, the joy of Christ Christ. The comfort of God that comes with redemption that we receive through repentance. And and that's what Jesus promised in this beatitude. That the blessed mourners will be comforted, the second half of the verse. They will be comforted. No one enters heaven without receiving comfort. Because Jesus says that's what heaven is going to be for everyone there. Revelation 21.4 says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Blessed are those who mourn, because they won't mourn forever. You are not going to be sad about anything. That's what godly mourners have to look forward to. And you know what? That's what godly mourners even even have tastes of now. Even before the mourning on earth is over, comfort from heaven has started to come down. 
Just like the fullness of the kingdom of God is not yet here. The fullness of the kingdom of heaven is still future. But the kingdom has been inaugurated in a beginning way already. Verse 3 says at the end that these blessed ones, theirs is, present tense, the kingdom of heaven. So, so also the beginning doses of comfort that comes with the kingdom are, are experienced and available to be enjoyed by Christians now. Right? We mourn over sins committed, but we find great comfort in sins forgiven. We mourn over the effects of sin in the world, but we find great comfort in His promises that He's working all things for good and that He's going to bring all bad things to an end. They will all become former things that have passed away. We grieve about various trials for a little while in this life, but still at the same time we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory as we love the Lord that we don't yet see. See, and and that's, that's the ultimate foundation of this comfort. It, it comes from a Christian's personal confidence in the Lord who has loved him. It, it comes from his confidence in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus, at the time of his greatest sorrow, was purchasing for us the greatest comforts. He bore our griefs. He bore our sorrows. So when he was going to the cross, you know what he said? He said, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And then he bore our sins. And then he rose from the dead so that he could be for us forever and also now the resurrection and the life. And that is the truth that he spoke to some dear friends of his who were mourning, Martha and And Mary, when when Lazarus died, he comforted them with this truth. I am the resurrection and the life. And he wept too. So so don't get the wrong idea with this beatitude or the last one. They show us the character of the Christian. but, But this is not a hopeless and morose and glum, joyless life. Poor in spirit and in mourning. At least the blessed coming down from heaven versions of these hard dispositions, that does not make you a a brittle and miserable person. It's the opposite. It leads to a life of zeal and joy. Jesus said, blessed are these. He doesn't say, blessed will be these after their miserable life is over. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, the mourning. They are happy. In a sin-cursed world, the righteous Mourn, they grieve, but they grieve in hope because of how this man of sorrows, Jesus, has tasted death for us and rose. And so Paul could even say an amazing thing in 2 Corinthians 6, 10. He said, he lives sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Not sometimes one and sometimes the other. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing rejoicing. That is a beautiful description of the, this paradoxical, blessed life of the Beatitudes. Those who have been saved into the kingdom of God, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, grieving yet always with hope, mourning yet always with comfort. That is the truly blessed life. 
in this fallen age as we wait for the age to come. Now I want to warn you with the last few minutes I have. There, there is a counterfeit version of this beatitude also that does not lead to God's comforts, joy, or hope. Um, one would be a worldly mourning that's mourning just over mourning just over some of the unpleasant consequences of sin and not over the sin itself, the offense of it against God. Uh, another kind that, that seems to be especially, I think, ascendant today would, would be a kind of mourning which is not feeling sorry for sins against God, but it's just feeling sorry for yourself. A very self-focused and self-righteous kind of mourning. Uh, it, it often, again, it expresses itself in kind of a victimhood or entitlement mentality. It, it, says, it says, I am poor and needy, but it's other people's fault. I am sad, I do mourn, but I shouldn't have to be, and it's other people's fault. And if everyone would treat me like I deserve, then I would have a really blessed life like I deserve. Friends, that sadness is not a blessed gift of God in your heart. And that will not lead to God's comforts. But you know what will? The good news of the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus came, he said, quoting Isaiah 61, I've come to preach good news to the poor, the poor in spirit. I, I have come to bind up the brokenhearted. I have come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I've come to comfort those who mourn, to give them the oil of gladness in exchange for mourning. And, and the good news of the kingdom of heaven does all of that because the kingdom of heaven, according to the good news-ish of it, is a free gift given to sinners on the basis of the work of His Son. There is nothing that you need to do to qualify yourself to receive his kingdom. You don't have to take the first baby step of righteousness before you receive his kingdom. All you have to do is come to him empty-handed and say, God, I depend totally on you in the work your son did. I want to receive and entrust myself to him and receive this kingdom of heaven and the salvation that comes with it. And, 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 and mourn, as you mourn over your sins, which, which is inevitably part of coming to God in that kind of way, be careful not to use the second beatitude to crush and overturn the first beatitude, which would be to say, to imagine that, that you have some spiritual riches that you can offer to God to merit His kingdom because of how well you mourn, how much you mourn. How deeply you have mourned. No. You, you come to him poor in spirit about even how little you have mourned over your sin. Come to him poor in spirit about how poor you are in being poor in spirit. Mourn over how you haven't mourned over your sin. This, this is the heart of the beatitude because it, the kingdom is the gift of God. And, and this is the way someone enters the kingdom. And this is the last thing. This is the way someone lives like they're in the kingdom. Being poor in spirit in mourning, that is not just the way to become a Christian. That is the way to live as a Christian. 
in an ongoing way repenting, in an ongoing way casting your, yourself at the feet of God for mercy and loving Him for the mercy that He gives you. And if you will walk poor in spirit, mourning, poor in spirit, mourning, then you will receive God's comforts and you will live a life that is more and more reflective of heaven and full of the joy of heaven. You will live more of a life that looks like what Jesus is going to teach in the Sermon on the Mount. God, I pray that you would help us to do that for your glory so that the joy of heaven would uh, reflect more in our lives so that others would see our good deeds and glorify you in heaven and also so that you would just be pleased. We know you are pleased to give the kingdom. You are pleased for us to enjoy your gifts. You are pleased to comfort us. So help us to, to, to live a life that's more like these beatitudes uh, so that we could experience your comforts and blessings for your good pleasure. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.